Welcome to the Find These Times, a podcast dedicated to the easy task of tackling the 21st century. It is a project born out of my conviction that doing so requires an interdisciplinary and intersectional approach to understanding our complex world. I'm your host, Jerea Yub, and in these episodes, I bring you conversations at the intersection of politics, history, philosophy, culture, science, and all the fun stuff in between. The following episode was first published for monthly Patreon supporters. To become a monthly Patreon supporter, please head out to patreon.com slash times or check the website for other methods. You can become a supporter for as little as $1 a month. And if you cannot donate, you can still support this project by sharing with your friends and family and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The music of this podcast is by Tarabit. Here's the episode. So it's become a common story, one told by the likes of celebrities and politicians, from Leonardo DiCaprio to Barack Obama. We've even often seen climate scientists tell it too, sometimes with added nuance and sometimes not. The story is that climate change caused the Syrian revolution in 2011. Usually, they refer to a drought that started in 2006, and which caused a large migration from rural areas to urban centers. The thing is though that this wasn't the first drought, nor necessarily the worst one. What changed was simply government policy, and of course the influence that the Arab Spring had on Syrian revolutionaries. In this episode I sat down with Professor Marwa Daoudi, author of the book The Origins of the Syrian Conflict, Climate Change and Human Security, to debunk some of these myths. We looked at the drought itself and how water and food politics in Syria, as indeed everywhere else in the world, have as much to do with politics and ideology than they have to do with the environment. We looked at the role of ideology, from rural Baathism in the 60s to neoliberalism under Hafez al-Assad, to the so-called infitah or economic opening in 1990, and finally the social market economy since 2005 under Bashar al-Assad. We spoke about the erasures that such deterministic narratives engage in, who gets erased from the story and why? How does this tie into Western racism, xenophobia and Islamophobia towards the quote-unquote climate migrant or climate refugee? And why should the very idea of security be understood with more nuance? We even discussed the rural-urban divide in Syrian nationalist ideology. I think the questions we ask as well as the answers provided by Marwa are crucial to understanding ongoing debates that are sure to continue for decades to come as the effects of global warming worsen pre-existing structures and belief systems. So that's it for me folks, thank you for listening and take care. I'm Marwa Dawoudi, I'm an associate professor of international relations at the Center for Contemporary Arab Studies at Georgetown University. Um, I'm a political scientist with a focus on international relations, but also critical security, environmental politics, uh, negotiation theory and mediation theory, and uh, Middle East politics, of course. So we'll be primarily talking about your book, The Origins of the Syrian Conflict, Climate Change and Human Security. As it, it was completely coincidental, I listened to a lot of podcasts and I was going on like lots of my walks in the past couple of weeks and two very, very different podcasts, very different like themes brought up the uh, Syria and climate change in the same in the same sentence, what, like completely different. One was on ancient Greece and they were making some pretty uncomfortable, very un- awkward comparison that didn't really work for me. And another one was on Star Trek and they're also very random comparison. One, uh, like the Star Trek one was a bit more nuanced and uh, the guest basically said uh, like it was part of the cause. He didn't say it was the cause. 
uh, was the other one was completely deterministic. Just said like there was climate change and then people took, uh, just it created anger and people did revolution or whatever the argument was. And I feel like this is, it was part of the kind of one of the underlying themes in the book while I was reading it. And, um, you know, as, as something to, to debunk or something to at least make, make it a bit more complicated. So there's a quote that you use in the beginning by Garcia, which I'll just read if that's okay. Um, climatic facts are not facts in themselves. They assume importance only in relation to the restructuring of the environment within different systems of production, end quote. So with all of that in mind, can we start with like a general introduction of like how did this topic uh, come in mind and how did you come to write the book and what is it about, of course? Yeah, of course. So, so actually, I've, I've worked on environmental politics with a special focus on Syria since many years. My first book was on uh, the Syria-Turkey-Iraq negotiations from a power asymmetry and security perspective, where I wanted to bring uh, the perspective of the downstream countries, Syria and Iraq, over transboundary water sharing. So I did a lot of field work. Uh, I assessed what water meant for, for Syria, but also the security international relations dimension, which is my focus as well. Having that experience, uh, 10 years ago when the Syrian revolution happened and I, I moved to the US a few years afterwards, I started reading a lot of the literature in environmental security by US scientists and European scientists who had never stepped a foot in Syria and who had never worked on Syria, who started making those connections saying, actually what is happening in Syria is a climate induced conflict. So probably the intention was uh, valid in the sense they wanted to bring awareness on, on climate change and create some sort of securitization to say climate change is important, it could right. create a tragedy like the Syrian tragedy. But for me, as a Syrian scholar and a scholar on Syria, that was very much of a shortcut. And it was very unfair in my view, uh, in terms of the plight, uh, the, the involvement, the sacrifices made by the revolutionaries who did not have climate change at the forefront of their you know, mobilization. And, and clearly, so I, I was actually working on another book. I was working on the uh, peace process in, in Palestine, Israel, and trying to debunk this idea of a US mediation, you know, external. Yes, yes, that's a so big I one, yeah. My, yeah, so that will be maybe in my next project, but I switched the focus and I thought, no, I need to bring some agency here, uh, bring the voice, because of course the Syrians were never asked about what is going on in terms of that narrative. And I thought I had the field experience. I could bring in the sources. I can bring in my perspective also as a scholar to debunk that narrative. Because the problem with that narrative, you mentioned determinism clearly. So it's just, oh, climate change. And we know that Thomas Friedman between you know the usual suspects always write about these shortcuts you know thinking well there was drought then that created conflict Bashar al-Assad in one of his first speeches in 2011 he he blamed climate conflict for the grievances of the people so I felt it was taking out the agency of the revolutionaries but also of Syrian people and population and this is when I started off this project mainly with the idea of bringing their voices to the table and bringing my voice as well that's really great and so like that deterministic link it's often they usually reference the a big drought that happened a few years before the the, the start of the revolution uh can you sort of talk about that and why when they say when they so why are these deterministic interpretations why are they wrong or like why are they incomplete let's say 
Yes, they, they, they like dramatic cases like the Syrian case, right? Because that's a good showcase to say, you see, it's dramatic. It created this major tragedy and crisis. So we should be writing and working on climate change. So actually there was a very severe drought which happened in Syria between 2006 and 2010, but it's not the first drought. Uh, Syria has a, has a history of, of severe droughts and people have always adapted and, and they've managed. And so, and if you take the drought per se, and also of course, the narrative behind this climate conflict nexus is that there was a drought that uh, following that drought, all of the rural communities in the Hasake, Jazeera province, you know, formerly called Jazeera, um, they lost all of their livelihoods, they migrated, and they were the ones who were the source of instability and conflict in Syria. So somehow there's a dual aspect here. It's to say it's climate change, but also to put the responsibility of conflict and not thinking about what happened in Syria as a revolution, as an uprising, on, on the back of the migrants who actually were not part of the mobilizations. They had so much to deal with also because they were completely uprooted. They had no livelihood. They went, they were like parked in slums around Damascus, uh, Daraa, different areas. And a lot of the interviews done by the activists I interviewed were telling me, these were not the people. We know exactly who went to the streets of Daraa. These were the traditional families of Daraa, et cetera. So we ne I needed to debunk that sort of deterministic approach, which again, takes out also the responsibility of the government in that sense, because what happened is there was a very severe drought, but in my book, what I do, I compare the two droughts. There was one in 2006, but there was one in 98 to 2001. So the, the question here that one should ask, which I asked in my book is why the 98, 2001, if we follow that narrative and that deterministic perspective didn't lead to a conflict because we had a, a, actually a drought from the calculations I provide in the book, which was more severe than the 2006, 2010 in terms of you know, decrease in rainfall, increase in temperatures, et cetera. So clearly we have to link it with the political economy of the management of the resources, of the scarce water resources, also of the subsidies which were uh, removed from one day, almost one day to another for these very vulnerable communities. And also the neoliberal reforms that were implemented in 2005 by the Bashar al-Assad, you know, uh, a new presidency since 2000, where he really refocused um, his attention towards the urban centers versus the rural communities, creating, in fact, enforcing that rural urban divide that we had witnessed also in the previous years. Thanks a lot for that. And like a big part, you mentioned like the, the speech that Bashar Assad did in 2011. That's a good one. I actually forgot about that. Or the, the fact that a lot of those usually celebrities or even think tanks and politicians and others would kind of follow that same line of thought is a bit ironic. Um, because yeah, as you said, like, and it also, I guess it also links up to the other questions I had, which is like on the very concept of what it means by security. Like when we actually think of the word security, what does that mean? And I have a lot of thoughts on this, but I would really like to hear yours first on like, because I really see this book in many ways as trying to deconstruct a pretty prevalent notion of what of what security actually means, right? Absolutely. So, so the think tanks you mentioned are the ones which, when I started reading these reports, really made me rethink my research agenda and the... Mm. Really, the, the need to really contribute to that conversation. So, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's, you know, film documentary was talking about Syria, and President Obama was interviewed talking about Syria being the civil war, not even the revolution, referring to the civil war as a climate-induced conflict. Uh, many think tanks publishing reports, and again, many people writing about it who have 
not taken sources from Syria, had not interviewed Syrians, or even done research on that. There's another title, for example, when you remember that little boy, Aylan, who was crossing, going from Syria to Turkey, and when he drowned, very tragically, five years old boy, he was called an environmental migrant by a Canadian yes. newspaper. Mm. This is what an environmental migrant looks like. So again, a lot of confusion, a lot of securitization, manipulation. Um, security, I think, for me, this is where, what I tried in my book is to say we should, because of course, what I mean by securitization is this was also part of a conversation in Europe where the migrants coming from Syria and Libya and other places following the Arab Spring were seen as security threats to, to European prosperity, stability, etc. So suddenly there was this new, very disturbing narrative, which was actually blaming the victims, right, of, of war, of repression, etc. So I felt there was a need to debunk this perspective, this security perspective, and this is where I link it to human security. And I think instead of looking at it from a state security perspective, we need to bring it down to the level of the human being and what did these communities experience and later on uh, also the vulnerability of these communities and their resilience is also very much dependent on on the political context the, the economic context and and they're not security threats they're actually the victims but they're also adaptive agents and i debunk this also notion of migrants as either victims or or threats they're adaptive agents we see a lot of these migrants coming and integrating in Europe, providing capital as well as we've seen for a lot of the Syrian refugees who went to Jordan, Turkey and Egypt, they contribute to the prosperity of these countries. So this is where I still use the security framework, uh, but I debunk it by bringing the human security perspective. In fact, like of all places that that ancient Greece podcast that I mentioned in the beginning uh, had made also that exact same parallel. They, um, he was talking about like the sea peoples that were uh, theorized to have basically destroyed the Bronze Age um, revolution. And then he made this huge jump, which, as I said, wasn't very convincing whatsoever. But by saying that, you know, well, we don't know if the refugees of today, the climate refugees of today, it would be like the sea peoples of, of, of the past, essentially saying that those are potential destructive agents. And I mean, the host didn't challenge him, which was an issue. But this is this is a, a pretty common um, you know, through line in, in a lot of very different, you know, I mentioned, as I said, two pretty random podcasts have nothing to do with one another. I've heard this in context of, you know, climate documentaries that have brought this up, uh, narratives on, on social media, I've heard this, uh, books that are, you know, pop, um, pop science books, let's put it that way, would bring it up almost, uh, often, often meaning well, you know, it's not necessarily um, not like that ancient Greece podcast person I mentioned, but often meaning well by saying like, if we don't pay attention, like if we don't, you know, we're worried about a million, that was what the, the other one mentioned, actually, if we're worried about a million refugees that came and look what it did to Europe. Uh, if, you know, we have 10 million or 100 million and the United Nations, uh, you know, estimates a billion climate refugees, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, what does that mean? And it's always from that quote-unquote security uh, framework first and I mean as you said it doesn't really cover much of the story and, and so there's also this this I totally agree with you Joey mm -hmm. this narrative about collapsology which is well-intentioned again okay but it has this doom and gloom aspect to it and since the 90s we had these you know um, sort of forecasts about millions of refugees flooding 
of, uh, again, in a north and south divide, right? We're talking about refugees uh, coming from the global south and possibly impacting the security of the global north and its prosperity and its stability. And in Europe, we had quite of a sordid debate here. I mean, clearly we saw what Hungary and other countries did in terms of concentration camps for these migrants coming from the Mediterranean region and treating them as, in the, in the words of the, of the foreign minister, as security threats. They were coined as security threats. So we need to debunk that by showing also the different possibilities. I mean, these migrants come as, again, this ter term of adaptive agents, they integrate, they bring a lot of wealth in terms of knowledge, human capital, and also a financial capital for many of them when they, 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 they left Syria with know-how and they brought, you know, that contributed also to a lot of the know-how in Turkey we see today, which Syria is losing in the end. Well, yeah, yeah, of course, I completely agree with this. And, you know, to bring it back to Syria a bit more, um, because I can rant a lot about all of those uh, other narratives and discourses. Uh, I have noticed, however, like, okay, so let me ask you this way. I've noticed a lot of hesitation from uh, Syrian friends. You yourself quoted Yassin Hash Saleh. He's going to be a guest on this podcast at some point in the near future. I look forward um, to hearing that, yeah. Yeah, it's, I'm sure it's going to be really good. And he 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 also like debunks this this thesis, let's say, saying that those who resort um, who who resort to this climate change determinism, let's put it that way, are quote obviously ignorant of our situation and history end quote. Now, I obviously agree with this, you know, and I have no disagreements with that. Uh, I am, however, wondering, given that you know we're rejecting the the deterministic view. And we're seeing we need to focus on, you know, also what the government responds, the people's response, the actual, you know, factors on the ground, in addition to the, the ongoing reality of climate change, which is almost definitely going to be, you know, a, a multiplier or a stressor, what, whatever terms we want to use. Uh, how have you seen when, when the drought was brought up or when climate change was brought up, maybe more broadly, let's say, how have people thought about it in Syria, if if at all? So you you mentioned that quote that um, I when I when I went to Istanbul five years ago, I met with Yassin Al Saleh, and when I met him, I told him about my project, and he had no clue about this narrative. Mm. He was appalled, rightly so. And this is why I quoted him. He said they have no clue about our history in the sense understanding the history of of the, the uprising, the revolution, and the reasons behind it, the rationale for the, for the need for the populations, uh, population to, uh, to, to mobilize and, and to uprise. Um, I think there is a danger here, again, is the lack of accountability. When you focus on climate change, as, as a reason for the so-called conflict, uh, you take out the responsibility of the regime. You just think like the same way as Bashar mm -hmm. al-Assad uh, stated at the time, meaning, oh yes, of course there are grievances uh, in the Reef, you know, in the Hasaki region, in the breadbasket of Syria, uh, people have been marginalized, but all of that is because of climate change. And we, we do our best to adapt to it. So he's not referring to the political protest that happened in 2011, the brutal, brutal incarceration of the young people and older people who went to the streets. So this is, again, um, negating the accountability, the responsibility of the elites. And that's why, in my analysis, I link the, the management of the drought with elite decisions made at the time that also contributed to the vulnerability of the population. And clearly, I also mentioned in my first chapter that 
the political repression and the Arab Spring were major triggers of the revolution. So we should not forget about the triggering factors. But what I was interested in looking more uh, extensively into was the structural dimension about the political economy of Syria, the human insecurity in the decades that preceded the uprising and the revolution. And a lot, we already mentioned this a bit, but to kind of, I guess, to emphasize it a bit more, a lot of the, what, what we're calling like these deterministic, um, you know, simplifications, uh, these de deterministic narratives, uh, it's kind of the same thing as, you know, a few months ago or a couple of months ago now, there was the, of course, the commemoration of the 10 year, uh, the 10 year commemoration of the start of the revolution. But a lot of the headlines, a lot of the uh, coverage, a lot of, you know, those, those papers that I, I often criticize, uh, said, you know, 10 years since the beginning of the Syrian conflict, right? Like 10 years since the beginning of this, even they, they might say 10 years since the beginning of the Syrian civil war, whereas it, uh, March 20, 2011 was not the beginning of the Syrian conflict or the civil war or whatever terms we want to use for later, was actually just the sort of protest, the sort of the revolution, what came, what followed, followed after. And it's a lot of that same narrative that I think has you know, sometimes uh, through ignorance, sometimes uh, ill-meaningly, I mean, Bashar is an obvious example, but lots of people who have invested interest in having this quote-unquote state security uh, narrative, whereas they are in think tanks, including think tanks that would, you know, call themselves anti-Bashar. I think that there are these uh, convenient stories that are, that are convenient narratives, I should say, that keep on being recycled time and time again. But like a, a big part of, of this book, or at least, you know, the, the impact it had on me, I haven't finished it, but I'm, I'm going through it, uh, is this reaffirmation of just agencies of the people on the ground, the intellectuals who have been thinking about it, the activists, and so on and so forth. Does that make sense? Absolutely, Joey. And, and the thing is, you know, you know what I, I wanted to do also is to show there's been a very, very rich and interesting debate happening in Syria in 2006. By with the through the uh, Syrian Association of Economic Sciences, engineers, water engineers, contributing to the discussion about climate change, the drought, and the mismanagement of the drought, but also the uh, political economy choices that the regime was doing at the time, and they were warning the government, saying, "Be careful! These are this is making the populations more vulnerable. The issue of the subsidies, the issue of the corruption, etc." Some of these writers, by the way, have joined the opposition. Uh, you know, circles later on, Samir Saifan and others, mm -hmm. and they keep on writing about the economic, the corruption in Syria. It intensified the corruption, which was already there in the end. So I, I think this is very important to bring to the forefront also, that there's been a debate, which of course these think tanks never referred to, but I, I had a research assistant of mine go through all of the papers, summarize the main points, and I included it in my, in my book uh, to, to be able to show, in fact, the agency of these experts who are the most knowledgeable uh, about what is happening, what was happening in Syria. The second point I wanted to make, Joey, is talking about narrative. You know, the regime also had a propaganda at the time. Uh, this Again, this urban rule divide, Reef from, from Idlib, all of these areas, 
speaking to the urban centers, because these were the privileged interlocutors for Bashar and the people around him, to tell them, beware, uh, our way of life is being threatened. Of course, negating the political aspect of it. At the same time, what the regime security services were doing was also adding to the propaganda by saying, you see, Damascus and Aleppo were acquiescent because nobody rose, nobody joined the revolution, which was wrong, of course, because mm -hmm. we know there were many protests, sit-ins, but the strategy of repression was much harsher in those urban centers so that it pushed every public space, every time there was a, a peaceful mobilization, it was very brutally crushed from the beginning because there was a realization that Damascus and Aleppo were strategic for regime survival. And the result was that it pushed all of the mobilization to the outskirts of the city. And it, it, then it became, you know, Rif Dimashq, the, the outskirts of Damascus, the outskirts of Aleppo, who became the heart of the opposition and the revolution. And, and again, contributing to this propaganda saying, it is a revolution of the dispossessed and we should be preserving our urban, you know, modern way of life. And, and again, in a, in a lie saying that these centers were quiet when in fact they were not, they were heavily repressed as well. Uh, just so that I think we, just to be fair to sort of the argument that we're trying to, to, to disagree with, let's say, um, what did happen? Like, what did the drought do? Like, what did actually happen in the in the years before the the the, the revolution started? So what happened is that you had a very severe drought. You know, uh, a lot. Um, drop a decrease in the um, in the rainfall, uh, increase in the temperature, and and I'll refer you to the numbers there. But um, and again, what happened at the same time is that. Uh, in 2005, the, the regime, the Ba'ath Party met and decided to establish the social market economy, which was in fact to sort of liberalize the economy. In the end, it was getting inspiration from uh, Germany's uh, post-World War II recovery, remarkable econ economic recovery, thinking what we need to have is sort of some sort of safety nets from the government, but also liberalization. And actually what was happening at the time was that the regime was moving away from its rural constituents and, and uh, getting thinking also uh, Syria had to withdraw from Lebanon, which used to provide very uh, um, valuable rents for the army, the security service, etc. So by implementing these reforms, liberal reforms, the point was also to bring in more, you know, revenues from, from external investments to Syria. International actors such as the World Bank, who was advocating the end of subsidies. And you know that Syria traditionally had a collective agricultural sector. It's, uh, you know, pan-Arab socialist ideology was really focused on bringing prosperity to the agricultural, the rural communities, um, making the peasant also the symbol of the new regime after the, the Ba'ath regime in the 1960s, the rise to power. And, and knowing also that Hafez al-Assad was of a peasant family. So that was also sort of mixing legitimacy power under under the the encouragement of the mm -hmm. world bank who advised that to to have better um reforms economic reforms the government should stop the subsidies and we're talking about subsidies to um you know crops uh paying like preferred prices, purchasing the crops, the so-called strategic crops such as cotton, wheat, barley and others. The strategic no, no crops that have been favored by, by the Ba'athist uh, uh, governments throughout the decades that preceded actually in 2005, and these are cotton, barley, wheat, uh, which the peasants could sell to the government at favorable prices. Also, 
subsidies in terms of fuel, when the peasants needed to dig wells or to go and sell actually the crops, they had subsidized uh, you know, rates for the fuel. All of these subsidies were removed at the time quite, quite drastically. And I mentioned before the papers written by Syrian experts, they were urging the government not to lift the subsidies immediately. They would arguing that uh, eventually there would be the need to lift them to, to you know, uh, prevent further corruption. But in the context of the severe drought, that was in fact making the communities more vulnerable. What happened then was the collapse of the agricultural sector. And we're talking about the breadbasket of Syria in the Northeast, the Jazeera province, the Hasake area. And usually these rural communities have always migrated, right? But it was a different type of migration. It was the head of the household who would go and migrate to other areas, uh, uh, possibly during the winter, come back and provide livelihoods to his, his family. In the case of 2006, 2008, the whole communities were uprooted. And the UN numbers were like 1 million. This is overrated. I looked back at the, at the numbers in the papers. There were actually about 40 to 60,000 families. And that constituted about 400,000 individuals from that region who were completely uprooted and had to go to other areas in Syria. And they lost any means for survival when in fact they had traditionally relied on agriculture. And this is what happened at the time when the government realized its mistake, it was too late. They tried to reinstall the subsidies in 2008 and 9, but then it was way too late because the whole communities had already uh, migrated to other places in Syria and they were neglected by local authorities. They were parked in slums. They were trying to survive uh, and, and help by a lot of the activists I talked to in Damascus who were telling me uh, there was like private initiatives to go and provide for these communities. There was nothing done by the government at the time to help these uprooted communities. And a lot of this, so you mentioned the, the reforms, the neoliberal reforms or whatever in, the, in 2005, uh, when neoliberal reforms were actually before that. So yeah, so my next question was actually about that. You, you know, you approach the topic of ideology in your book um, in terms of how it impacts food security. You know, for example, it's kind of an obvious one, but, you know, feel free to think of others. I know you list the transition between, you know, rural Ba'athism in the 60s to neoliberalism in the 70s to the quote unquote infitah or like opening opening up the economy in the 90 and then the social market economy in 2005. Uh, can you sort of explain for those who don't know any any of the words I just mentioned, uh, what does, you know, what does that mean and what does it actually look like in terms of at least, uh, you know, food security, maybe if you want to focus on that on or water security for that matter? Yes, so, so for me, ideology was an important factor, understanding the impact of, of what happened in Syria as human insecurity in the decades before 2011. Uh, what do I mean by ideology? I, I refer here to the Gramscian conception, encompassing also institutional practices, principles, and the dogmas also that consolidate the class alliances and a prevailing hegemonic discourse. And clearly, in the 1960s, with the rise to power of the Ba'ath, um, there was this idea of food security as a national security objective. And the idea was also to provide for the livelihoods of the peasants, um, to preserve the independence and sovereignty of, of, of Syria, and also this you know, burgeoning populations that needed to have the means for their livelihood. So food security became very, very important uh, for the new classes. Also the, the origins also, because of the origins, many of them are from peasant communities. So they wanted to provide back for, the, for their own communities. I contrast that with the 
liberalization, you know, processes that didn't start in 2005, as you rightly mentioned. 2005 was the peak with the social market economy. But it's interesting to know the Infitah in 1990 was not, again, the first step under Hafez al-Assad. It happened already in the 1970s when Hafez al-Assad came to power. He realized that the, the, the government was not yielding sufficient revenues from agricultural sector, despite all of the investments. So he, he started liberalizing, decollectivizing, in fact, a lot of the sector and opening it to private investments, starting from the 1970s and later also opening the economy to private investments. And actually, this food security objective, which had, I think, an, an honorable, you know, intention behind it, uh, led to a lot of the mismanagement of the water resources. There was intensive irrigation, uh, intensive um, construction of illegal wells, which in fact uh, tapped a lot groundwater resources because it was cheaper for the peasants to just dig a very shallow well over 10 meters, it didn't cost much and it allowed the peasant to irrigate its, its land. There was a core periphery within Syria divide between central authorities and engineers and the periphery, which did not want to always abide by these licenses and these um, demands for actually presenting uh, authorization for a license to build a well. And the water uh, security was quite impacted also by um, the construction of large dams which create a lot of evapotranspiration. And we're talking about the Tabqa Dam on the Euphrates, which also led to societal issues such as the displacement of communities in the Euphrates Basin. Their settlement uh, in the Hasake region, adding to the Kurdish issue within Syria, which is in fact with the plan of Arabization. So when we think about food security, water security, there's a whole set of different impacts and consequences which touch on economic societal issues. Also, th there was an ideological component to the choice of strategic crops that needed to be grown by, by the peasants. There was a very strict agenda here. And for example, a water engineer that I spoke to, he blames the revolution on the mistakes made in terms of developmental plans by the government by saying, for example, choosing cotton as a strategic crop was a huge mistake because it's highly water consumptive. So it added to the water uh, scarcity issue. And when you say they chose certain crops like cotton for ideological purposes, was it like because it appealed to a certain you know, they were appealing to a certain sense of like Syrian nationalism, for example, or something along those lines? Yes, I, clearly there was the, the socialist, Ba'athist, pan-Arab, uh, nationalistic uh, agenda, which was important here, uh, relying on the peasant. And, and I look through actually the cult of, of personality, but also the cult of the peasant as a way for the new regime, Ba'athist regime, to create legitimacy and to, to yield, to cater to these constituencies. The mistake that Bashar did afterwards was completely disregard these constituencies because his focus shifted towards the urban centers and new class alliances, actually, uh, which Hafez had started in the 70s when he also catered to the Sunni merchants. But what Bashar did was really the neoliberal uh, higher class, the display of, of fortune, the display of money, which happened in Syria in the early 2000s and intensified this rural urban divide between these urban centers, but also some classes within these urban centers and the periphery, uh, which was completely marginalized in, in those plans. Right, right. That makes sense. Okay, so kind of putting my, the academic hat on a bit more. Um, 
you know, a lot of discussions regarding what what you call like the the climate security nexus usually start from state security, as we said, like state security rhetoric. And I'm putting state security in quotations, which stands to criminalize potential climate refugees. Okay, we already went through this. I'll just re-emphasize this because it's just a, a massive concern of mine. I think it's something that's going to happen more and more as we were seeing it. You know, we've been seeing it happening in the past few years, and I don't I don't see this stopping anytime soon, unfortunately. And so what I mean by that is that a lot of concerns, you know, as we said, regarding issues such as desertification, deforestation, water shortages, and so on, uh, stem from politicians and governments and others being worried that the refugees fleeing these issues will come to them, you know, the whole Fortress Europe metaphor in mm -hmm. the case of uh, the region and Europe. Um, and I think part of what is happening is that they say that they don't want climate refugees, they say that they're worried about refugees and etc, etc. Okay, that's one issue, an issue of xenophobia, an issue of nationalism, etc, etc. But at the same time, they continue to have these extractivist economies, they continue to have these uh, pollution, which they themselves end up then saying, well, it's going to create climate refugees, etc, etc. So okay. this is like at the surface level, this is like a level of discourses. What I'm interested in, um, like my question to you is more like, you think, okay, you, okay, let me phrase it this way. You already said that this framework is, of course, simplistic, right? Like climate security nexus on its own is simplistic. Um, what what do you propose? Like, can you get into this uh, HECS as you call it? Uh, and you can you kind of explain as to how this adds nuance in, in in usually these debates that tend to be very over simplistic. So, so I, I was struck by the literature, and you mentioned rightly, it's the narrative, it's the discourse, but it's also how the discourse is built, the policy discourse is built through academic studies. So a lot of the, the literature um, in environmental security by geographers, political scientists, and others, they go through quantitative studies where they throw in this premise of a link with conflict, and the mitigating factor for them is, oh, is there a sound institution or not? Um, um, uh, is there migration again? How is migration contributing to that, et cetera? So I think what I tried in my book is to move away from that and to say there's also a sample bias because a lot of these studies look at sub-Saharan Africa where you already have a conflict. And then it happened that there's a drought. So you make those links saying, well, actually the drought is behind, you know, the lack of cooperation, the conflict between the communities, et cetera. What I try with my, I, I developed a framework, which a conceptual framework, which I called the human environmental climate security, HEX, um, where I bring in the human security aspect. And you know, human security is a policy concept, which was developed by uh, Amartya Sen and Habibul Haq to, to change the narrative in the 1990s to say, we should not think only in terms of Cold War, you know, security, state level uh, security. We need to look into the level of human uh, communities, the human, the individual communities as well. Uh, the problem with this concept, it also led to intervention, interventionist uh, policies, you know, like for human rights reasons, uh, the US feels entitled to intervene, you know, and to bomb, etc. What I wanted to do is to have a critical perspective from on a human security level, so that I bring it to the climate security discussion as well, uh, analyzing the interactions between human security, climate security and also political and economic structures. So I, I felt the need to outline the unequal power structures that cause or encourage human suffering with significant implications for climate insecurity and its consequences. Um, and also for the unequal power relations between the global north and the south, which we don't have in those climate 
conflict uh, discussions, but also between a central government and its marginalized subjects. And that is where the Syrian case study is very illuminating in my view in trying to debunk, but also to reinforce this idea of human insecurity uh, leading to um, um, instability more broadly because the populations are marginalized and they have grievances. Although uh, behind the Syrian revolution, we have to look into the different layers. And this is why actually I, I look into, um, I have concentric circles which overlap. So when you think about climate vulnerability, you need to look at the political vulnerability, you need to look at the economic vulnerability, issues of corruption as well, injustice, and the societal issues relating to migration and the dispossession of, of whole communities within that overall human insecurity. Mary, thanks for that. And you list um, three different factors, right, of the human environmental climate security, structural vulnerability and resilience. Can you sort of just explain those a bit? So, you know, at the core, at the core of the climate uh, change discussion, there are the issues of vulnerability and resilience, right? How, how does climate change make communities vulnerable? And are they resilient? Are they adaptive or not? Is there a possibility to enforce the adaptation? For me, um, I, I deploy these concepts. I put them at the core of my conceptual framework, but I link it to structure as well, which means for me, you cannot understand this if you don't look into the contextual factors that I've outlined previously, the political, economic, societal, uh, and, and climatic uh, vulnerability. So for me, vulnerability, I define it as the disruptions to patterns of daily life, uh, from the perspective of the marginalized and the dispossessed, because I have this human security perspective. And these patterns include chronic water insecurity, land degradation, arable land scarcity, food insecurity, and poverty. And I think the issue of poverty is crucial here, because poverty is a result of the political economy of, of the policies, and mm -hmm. climate change exacerbate that if it's mismanaged, of course. And in terms of resilience, it's also uh, the capacity uh, of these communities to anticipate, cope with, and recover and resist the impact of a natural hazard. So if you don't have the structures, the institutions, the government's involvement to help the communities resist and adapt and cope, which they have traditionally done because drought is part of Syria's fabric. It's part of Syria's history and they've done it in the past. But when you suddenly decide to implement neoliberal reforms because the World Bank and the international community is pushing you to do it and it's part of your regime survival, then you're preventing these vulnerable communities from becoming resilient and they actually uh, lose all of their livelihood in the end. Thanks for that as well. And if, is it okay if we can kind of get a bit more examples? Like you mentioned one thing that I think many people don't really know about if, you know, they're not familiar with the specifics of Syrian dynamics is, you know, you mentioned Arabization in, in, in the, I think you call it Arab encirclement of, of Kurdish areas. How does that relate to, like, why did you include that in the book? Let, let me put it that way. Okay, I'll tell you why, because, um, you know, when, when you grow up in Syria for Syrians of non-Kurdish descent, the Kurdish Syrians in the urban centers are part of, you know, the whole population and there's mm -hmm. no distinction made there and the families are mixed, etc. And I discovered the reality of what happened in the Jazeera province through a friend who's a Syrian Kurdish painter who, who, who told me actually um, 
when he was offering me one of his paintings, Bashar al-Isa, uh, he was telling me, actually, you know, you have to realize that we feel we are part of the Arab culture, but we also have our own entity and we have been denied citizenship for many decades by the Syrian government. Yes. So, I was very struck when I started reading about the Tabqa Dam and the displacement of the population in the Euphrates Basin, who was promised, you know, land elsewhere and resettlement, that there was an Arab encirclement plan here, a deliberate, you know, strategic plan to, based on demographics, like to reverse the demographics in the Jazeera province. And one has to also contextualize uh, the history of, of what happened in the Jazeera. Uh, these were initially Kurds who had fled Turkey who were settled in the northeast of Syria, but they were never given uh, the nationality because the, the problem here was that the, in the perspective of the Ba'athist, you know, um, Arab nationalist regime was the, 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 the need to Arabize these regions. And one way to do it was to resettle the population, the 60,000, but they were not all resettled, but the Arab population from the Euphrates Basin, mm -hmm. bringing them to the Jazeera to try to reverse the demographic balance and to Arabize the region. And of course, part of the agrarian revolution that was supposed to help a lot of the uh, rural communities, a lot of the Kurdish populations were denied access to the gains of that revolution and access to the land, etc. And that created resentment clearly on the part of the Syrian Kurds. And, and we know that somehow after the revolution, there was a tacit agreement between Bashar al-Assad's regime and these areas that they could go on their own and they became autonomous and they created mm -hmm. the Rojava just with the idea of putting pressure on Turkey who had taken a strong stance against the, the Assad regime at the time. All right, thanks. And this, this is a really good, interesting example. Like it's a pretty, pretty direct and pretty uh, concrete in, in many ways ex um, example of what you're calling the human environmental climate security, right? It, can you think of another example of where the, the hex, as you call it, the human environmental climate security framework uh, help us understand a dynamic within Syria that, you know, without that framework, the narrative would simply be incomplete. Does that I mean, make sense? Um, I'm trying to think because for me, it I, I the conceptual framework mm -hmm. engulfs the whole links between climatic vulnerability, political, societal, and at the core, I look at water and food security. So are you thinking in terms of communities? No, not necessarily, not necessarily. In terms, you, because you mentioned like dams, you mentioned irrigation, those are, okay, okay so I guess I'm, I'm asking of like, if we can maybe re-emphasize, if that makes sense, if that's not too much of a repetition, how ideology directly links, um, or how ideology directly ends up impacting people on the ground through these narratives, if that makes sense. So clearly ideology becomes sort of a driver of human insecurity impacting water and food security. Mm -hmm. So this is why I think when you look at ideological choices, the preferences of the elites, again, we're talking about a top-down process. So you have elites who, who frame these ideological choices or these policies around ideological priorities uh, uh, serving also their own interests somehow, um, it has a direct impact. It changes land tenure, access to land tenure. And we know there were politics of nationalization, which happened in the 1960s and 70s, to redistribute the land to the different communities. Uh, the focus on food security also meant that these rural communities had to grow these strategic crops in priority. Otherwise, they would not benefit the, from the subsidies. Uh, that meant also the, the choices of crops, which were water intensive, were also ideologically driven. And I mentioned cotton before. 
and wheat as being the, the most important strategic crops for Syria. Um, the, the distribution of land, the fact that you had also could collect the collectivization of agriculture, where people had access to, to entitlements through these collective you know, uh, structures also meant that some categories within these populations were favored at the expense of others. And this is where corruption also happened through that. And the irony is that the lifting of subsidies was on the ground of you know, preventing further corruption. And we know for sure that, for example, a lot of the people uh, in the different regions would sell subsidized fuel to Lebanon and other parts because they bought it very cheap and they were able to sell it at the higher price in the neighboring countries. So that created corruption. But at the same time, possibly there was also corruption at the different levels of the government entrenched in the political economy and the management of natural resources, which was even more emphasized when you look at the, um, uh, at the water and food uh, production, access to water resources, management of water resources through the dams and irrigation networks, but also the um, political objective of reaching food security at any expense, even though it really impacted groundwater, even though you had different populations accessing food security or not, having privileged access to the collectivities, which I outline. Uh, Hassan Hanna Batato has really written beautiful books about the organization of the agriculture sector according to these ideological preferences and which parts of the um, elites actually and the different classes were privileged in the process, allowing us to understand actually how these different concentric circles that I outline overlap in understanding why we need to look at the drought, why we need to look at climate change from this social, political, economic and societal perspective as well. I actually, it made me think that like, I had I had written this essay or this paper with the, with Christophe Maroon, a friend of mine, um, last year for the Arab Reform Initiative on the Bisri Dam in in Lebanon, yeah. mm-hmm. and um, of course opposing it. And we we kind of went through the history, and it turned out that the project, the idea of it, went back to the 50s. It was proposed by the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation the, uh, after the the at the time there was a very pro-U.S. Uh, Lebanese government, of course. And um, it, it turns out, this is something I didn't really know, that governments like the Lebanese one really, really loved uh, dams. <laughs> like they really loved to use dams at almost every turn. Uh, one academic, uh, Namad Abusham, an uh, environmentalist, described, like, uh, described dams as having this almost idealized place in Lebanon's national yeah. water strategy. Um, is there something similar along those lines? You mentioned because you mentioned how the the World Bank really also, or you mentioned how the government was basically falling in line with what the girl, the World Bank's uh, quote unquote recommendations were, right? Yes, they, they they recommended to lift the subsidies to to allow for. Uh, yes, foreign yes. investments and to allow for more flexibility and not to focus so much on the agricultural sector. Then the World Bank uh, claimed afterwards that they recommended that the government does it gradually and, and takes into account the, the, the climatic you know, context. Um, of course, we never know how much of that is, is, is true or not. But at the time, clearly that call was answered by, by the Bashar al-Assad government. Uh, I think this Yes, this mythology around dams is not particular to Syria and Lebanon. It's also very much part of a lot of the developmental plans from the 1960s, 70s, 80s. This idea of taming the river and taming 
the man taming the river and producing benefits such as hydroelectricity, uh, um, irrigation to, to increase you know, food production, feeding the burgeoning populations. And we're talking about post-independence countries uh, with an ideal of you know, sovereignty, independence, nationalism. The problem here is the fact of building large dams. And there's also this issue of power, the power of the engineer. And, and by the way, Turkey has built a huge, one of the biggest dams in the world, the Ataturk Dam. And it's part of the same narrative, which is contested by a lot of environmentalists because you, you create a lot of, um, um, you know, you, you lose evaporation. Like when you have such large reservoirs, there is a lot of evaporation, so water is wasted. You also displace populations because you need to flood many areas. And Turkey has also flooded large parts of Southeast Anatolia, where a lot of the Kurdish uh, population is and a lot of the yes. Kurdish uh, um, you know, uh, military movements uh, reside as well. So there's a political engineering, a technical dimension to it, which is very interesting. In the case of Syria, the Tabqa Dam was seen as a major symbol of this new Ba'athist regime. It was built in 1973, finished in 1973, and it created uh, this narrative that the government was bringing electricity to the remotest areas of Syria. It was modernizing the country. And I'll refer you, I don't know, for those of you who know uh, popular Syrian culture, there's Ka'asakiya uh, Watan, Cheers to My Nation by Dorid mm -hmm. Laham. Mm -hmm. And there's an excerpt I showed my students who while back uh, where he's being tortured by the security services, right? And the torture in Syria traditionally and until today is through electricity. And he, he claims yeah. at some point, he says, wonderful, electricity has reached my behind before reaching my village. And, and there clearly it's about the failure of these plans, right? Like saying, <laughs> my government being so effective and using electricity when actually the populations do not reap the benefits necessarily. And I think behind these plans, there's a lot of dreams, but also failures. And, and uh, the Tabqa Dam, interestingly, was also um, a target when, when Daesh, ISIS, started you know, the, its military operations in Syria, capturing the dam was also a symbol of power and success. And they captured the, the Tabqa and the Tishreen dams for a while before uh, they lost it. And they entered into agreement with the regime in terms of the provision of the electricity. So again, dams have a very symbolic importance uh, in terms of these developmental, but also in, in projecting power for any, any entity, state or non-state actor. You know, like if, if it's okay, I'm going to bring, um, put my cultural studies hat on a bit. Um, so, of course, many, so this is going to be, it's going to sound weird at first, but I, I urge listeners to be a bit more patient with me here. Um, there, so, of course, when, you know, the Avengers movie, right, there was this character of Thanos and the entire, the entire plot of that character was, uh, you know, he wants to kill half of all living beings because he is worried about overpopulation. And this is, you know, according to my interpretation and a number of other people that I, I can name, I'm probably going to do an episode on this at some point, reflects quite a common, let's say, anxiety would be the optimistic view of it. But often it kind of also veers into eco-fascism or racism or, you know, other stuff, because, of course, when we, when people think of populations, when people have these concerns, quote unquote, they tend to focus, of course, on the global south which has actually a pretty disproportionate uh, impact on climate change or reverse this in the sense they actually contribute much less than the developed world, which has fewer people. But putting that aside, the link here is that when we to go back to kind of the beginning of our conversation, 
uh, the whole, you know, I mentioned that ancient Greece podcast uh, of, you know, mentioning the re refugees as climate refugees and as, as essentially harbingers of doom, you know, potential ticking bombs as, as that uh, Charlie, a very racist Charlie Hebdo headline on Island Kurdi was a couple of years ago now. Yeah. Um, the link here that I was trying to make is that the people who end up having this very deterministic interpretation uh, of the of climate change and security or that climate security nexus that you mentioned actually have quite a lot in common with the people who will then be obsessed with population or quote unquote overpopulation, be obsessed with quote unquote climate refugees having, you know, go so the link is actually pretty might be awkward at first when you think about, oh, well, Thanos character and everything. But I think that represents pretty, pretty common um, uh, interpretation of our world. I can actually list another one. Uh, I think I already mentioned this on this podcast. I was taking this environmental course uh, in Beirut uh, around the time of the revolution and the end of 2019. And the topic was actually on permaculture in Lebanon. So it had nothing to do with population. And there was no real uh, hint by the professor that this is where we're going to go. But at some point, one of the students uh, in the class immediately started talking about overpopulation in Africa. And this is something that, you know, we debunked it, we deconstructed it, we even like I, I got a bit, you know, um, I, I, I got a bit angry. And but when we when we started, started talking, you know, more calmly, I realized that this is something that a lot of people have in the back of their mind when they think about these things. And that's why, because they would have this emotional response immediately. Right. They would think of people, foreigners flooding our lands using that metaphor. Uh, which is ironic given the, what flooding, you know, in the context of climate change. But so does that make sense? I don't know if I feel like I ramble too much. I'm sorry. No, I think it's an excellent point, Joey, because that's exactly what I touch on in my in my in the beginning of my book when I when I mentioned deterministic narratives and perspectives. If you look at the climate conflict, the climate nexus narrative, you, you have to, and I do it in the first chapter, you, you have to put it in context with the water wars narrative of the 1990s. Right, which yes. At the time, which at the time, and again, in a mix of popular culture, movies, documentaries, influencing policy, academic papers influencing the policy and vice versa, et cetera. So at the time, there were these claims that the, the next wars would be water wars and actually why, what was the understanding behind it? It would be to say, well, because the, the water resources are becoming scarce, uh, there will be disputes over these scarce resources. And uh, because of overpopulation, again, there was a neo-Malthusian aspect to it also saying the pressure by population growth, of course, in the global south, we're not talking about the global north, but population growth in the global south uh, will lead to more scarcity and potentially to war in the global south having an impact on the global north. And this neo-Malthusian aspect has really influenced, for example, um, people who advised the Clinton administration, Al Gore and others at the time, and, and push them to condition foreign aid with um, limitation of population growth, you know, like with programs saying, well, we give you aid if you agree to limiting population growth in your country, and we're talking about the global south. Interestingly, with the climate nexus, climate conflict nexus, like 20, 30 years later, 
we still have this population aspect through migration, but now we're talking about human mobility, right? Population being mobile and migrating and moving and potentially again also uh, impacting the security, the prosperity of, of these Western or global North countries. So you do have a neo-Malthusian uh, um, perspective in it, which mm -hmm. is clearly deterministic and racist in the end, because we're talking about Sub-Saharan Africa, we're talking about Mediterranean, we're talking about non-Western populations possibly threatening um, and invading and flooding uh, the societies in the global north. And this is why one has to debunk it. And it's also emphasized, you mentioned the movie, there's been like a lot of documentaries and at the time taken up by policymakers, but also academic studies a lot, which have contributed to that. And I think it's a, it's a very important point. I agree with you. Thanks for that. Yeah, it's, it's something that I'm just pretty concerned by. It's, you know, I, I, I do watch a lot of nature documentaries and there's always, or not always, but a lot of the time there is these you know this either undertone or even overturn of like either we do something about quote unquote the population or you know the rest is almost like there's a there's a very linear way of thinking like more people means more pollution more pollution means more you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and this just doesn't take into account any of the actual realities of the world we live in doesn't take into account capitalism doesn't take into account power dynamics, power imbalances, right. north, south, et cetera, et cetera. So thanks a lot for that. And it, it doesn't question the behavior of the, for example, if you think you're worried about, you know, uh, climate change, you should, should maybe change your way of life and use a fossil exactly. exactly. It's much easier to go and say, well, these potentially vulnerable, marginalized, uh, scary populations that are, want to come and steal our way of life and want to live with us and invade us are the ones to, to, to address and to target versus we need to change our way of life and capitalistic modes of production and the use of fossil fuels and knowing that the US is one of the major polluters internationally. But then, then again, you shift the focus and you sort of um, securitize again, the discussion and the debate. And that's why I think we need to debunk that and desecuritize it. Yes, thanks. Uh, there's really, for me, there's a direct line between everything we're talking about to, um, I mentioned this a number of times as well, but like the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, describing the Greek Coast Guard's actions against migrants and refugees as Greece being the shield of Europe, Aspida, she used the Greek yeah. term for it. Mm -hmm. yes. uh, there is very much, and while obviously Europe continues these extractivist economies, continues its polluting economies, there is very much this like we can you know, just build a wall essentially to use that Trumpist narrative. But, I mean, Europe has been doing the same thing for a few years now as well. And in order for us to have freedom of movement within Europe, you know, I'm, I'm based in Switzerland, then we need to have uh, these walls outside of Europe to protect us from basically the inevitable consequences of our own actions. Or at least that's how it's being portrayed when it is being portrayed a bit more honestly than the usual um, discourses. Exactly. And you notice, Joey, the militarization of the discourse, which is also part exactly. of the militarization, right? You're being a fortress, the shield, uh, security threats, etc. It's a way of addressing these human uh, tragedies in military terms so that you can target them with military operations or military-like measures, you know? So it's very interesting, again, to see how, how language, the construction and the production of knowledge also frames what is perceived as a security threat. And, and who is perceived as a security threat. And I mean, I think the, the two of us are particularly well <laughs> placed to understand the risks and the dangers of what happens when everything is militarized, especially language. Absolutely, absolutely.
And you have you actually have an entire section as well in the book. I opened it now, like from semantics to policy over migration. So you do also place quite a lot of emphasis on the the very language used, like the politics of language used to describe these things, right? I think it's crucial because when you yeah. look back at you know all this literature on securitization, is how you know from a Foucauldian perspective how you can you shape perspectives through language, you construct you know, sort of concepts and ideas through language. And, and, and you see an evolution in terms of semantics and we see it in terms of climate change also. This idea of climate security is also a constructed idea and it is impacting policymakers because yeah. it's easy, it's attractive. You can, you know, put budgets on it. You can identify a threat, etc. We've seen it in Syria also, you know, the move from revolution to civil war or to conflict, denying the agency of the uprisings of the revolutionaries. So I'm very concerned by these semantics, you know, the battle, the struggle behind the words and how they are easily manipulated, manufactured and translated into policies because you are able to shape perceptions. And I think that's why as to go back to your initial question, this notion of security, we should not take in as granted as being, you know, just what is meant by those policymakers. We can shape what we mean by security Security. And this is why I think human security from a critical perspective, still putting it in the context of, you know, unequal structures, which at the time human security did not do, uh, questioning the power asymmetry, the modes of production, etc. in my view, provides a useful lens to debunk all of this, uh, you know, jargon and narrative. Right. Yeah, no, totally, totally. Thanks a lot for that. And I mean, so I want to get into the book section, but before we do that, is there anything that you wanted to get into that I didn't really, really ask? No, I, I, I just want to say that this really, for me, the, the purpose and the motivation of, of writing this book was really to, to put Syria and the Syrian revolution and what happened in Syria um, on the map and not, not let, for example, others shape what, what, mean, what it means, what the Syrian revolution meant, what happened in Syria, and, and also to show the agency of Syrians. And I wanted to, I've met refugees, I've met experts, I've met activists, and I wanted their voices to be heard also within that debate, which often disregards, you know, that, that level of, of understanding and analysis and does not give agency. Uh, to the vulnerable, to the activist, it, it was giving agency to the policymakers, etc. So this was a major concern for me, and um, and I wanted also the Syrian experts who I interviewed, who have been working on these issues for many many years, who of course are you know heartbroken about what is happening in the country, to to contribute to the discussion. And I hope I've been able to do that through my research. No, absolutely. I, I honestly highly highly recommend this book. Thank and... you so much. My pleasure. And I mean, speaking of books, what are your uh, three plus books that you would recommend and why? So I, I, it's hard, of course, to limit it to three books, but I will mention the books that impacted me as a teenager and as a young adult growing up. And then more recently, the books that impacted my, my research and also my concerns as a Syrian and um, as a scholar of Syria as well. So as a young teenager, I was very impressed by and very marked by Hermann Hesse Steppenwolf. For me, it was about the human condition, the loneliness of the writer within a society and the loneliness of anyone 
pursuing intellectual endeavors which do not fit mainstream norms and conventions. And it made me think a lot about what missions we have in life. The other book that marked me also as a teenager was uh, Jack London's Martin Eden. And it was the destiny of a young working class man struggling to become a writer, getting out of his class condition, a free spirit who in the end is crushed by loneliness when navigating society's norms again. So that was part of my reflection as a teenager at the time. And more recently, I will, I will mention uh, three books on Syria, which um, really marked me and continue to mark me. So the first one is Samar Yesbek, The Crossing. It's part of all of her writings, you know, and um, when she writes in the book that the only victor in Syria is death, and she dedicates her books to the martyrs of the revolution, the betrayed, and I think that captures it all. Yassin Al-Hajj Saleh's Impossible Revolution, where he goes through the drivers, the triggers, uh, his personal testimony is very powerful also as someone who has been detained for so many years in Syria's prisons and also as, a, as one of Syria's major intellectuals. I would put here also his letters to his disappeared wife, Samir Al-Khalil, who was abducted in Douma in 2013. Douma, ironically, where Bashar al-Assad casted his vote in the last you know, so-called elections in Syria yep. as a symbol of domination and repression again. And I will end with Mustafa Khalifa's The Shell al Kaukaa, which I was very moved to read. Uh, his, the tale of a prisoner in Syria's prisons, very terrifying, but also extremely moving and very telling, a lucid and chilling account of what it means to be a detainee, to experience torture, but also solidarity in the prison cell and a message of hope possibly for all Syrian detainees. I'm saying possibly and hopefully. All right, thanks a lot for that. I would, as I said, I will have Yassin on at some point in the near future. Wonderful. And I will say also that uh, Sarah Hunaydi, a good friend of mine, has been translating Samira's letters from Arabic into English. Oh, wonderful. wonderful. Uh, I, I don't actually know what that is. Very moving, very touching letters, yes. They are. And if anyone's listening, if you want to uh, read Samira's letters, you can find them on, on Jumuri. I, I will link those in the, mm -hmm. in, in the description. Um, Terry Marwa, thanks a lot for your time. This has really, really been a, a pretty enriching conversation. Thank you so much, Joey. I really enjoyed it. And I, I, I told you at the beginning when you sent me sort of a sketch of the type of conversation we would have, you put me on my toes and, <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate it. And also, you know, questioning the security framework, all of that and, and very enlightened and interesting questions. And I thank you very much for your time and for giving me this opportunity to really dwell and explain uh, a project which is very dear to my heart and um, to my research agenda as well. My pleasure, Yidi. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you.
To fire these times is made possible by supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to support through a monthly donation, you can head out to patreon.com slash fire these times. If you want to explore other options, you can do so by checking out the website.